0: Welcome to the Preaching and Teaching Ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. We continue our series on the life of Jesus, going through the Gospel of Luke. Start off again with a question. This isn't so much a personal question because it doesn't involve us. But who would want to kill Jesus? Why would they want to kill Jesus? Now, I know that many of you... Perhaps have read enough of the Word of God that you know the answers to those, but, but just think about it from the perspective of in Jesus' day, when Jesus is on this earth, He is a loving man. He, He obviously loves God. He loves people. He heals people. He raises the dead. He provides for needs. But there are some people that are so upset with Him that even though at this point in Luke, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, we're still somewhat early in the story of Jesus. There's still several years to go in his life and ministry before he's eventually going to be crucified on the cross. But even this early on in the story of Jesus, there are people who are so upset with him that they begin to plot his death. Who? Why? If we didn't already know the story or what we know of the story, we think there must be some really evil men and whatever. But, you know, it's the good guys. It's the people that are considered the most spiritual and the most religious and the most devoted to God who want to kill Jesus. We've talked about this before, so I'll just deal with it really, really, really quick. But first of all, you got the Pharisees. The Pharisees are mostly middle class, they're very conservative believers in God and in His word, and they believe that God's word has the authority to tell us what we should believe and how we should live. and they're very committed to, to, to serving God and to obeying God, the Pharisees. And then you have the group that's called the scribes, or some translations say the teachers of the Law. Many of them are Pharisees, but this is kind of a subgroup. These are the Bible scholars. These are the ones that study God's word and study all the traditions of their people. And they're the ones that are actively involved in teaching the people. They're considered experts in everything that's spiritual. They're teaching people how to believe, what to believe, and how then to apply that to their lives. And then we have a third group that's not quite come into the story yet. They're going to be a lot more instrumental in wanting the death of Jesus toward the end. And that's the Sadducees. You've heard about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two totally different groups of people. The Sadducees are the upper class. They're the elite. They're the ones that are in power. Pretty much all the priests and the chief priests are Sadducees. The Sadducees do believe in God, but just kind of nominally, all right? They do believe in God's word, but not only just part of it. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in the miraculous. They don't believe in life after death. This life is all there is. So if believing in God is convenient, then we'll believe in God. Sounds like some people I know, or at least know about. Because they were in power and they didn't want that to be upset, they cooperated with the Romans those who were truly in control of God's people because they had conquered them so long before. Well, what was it that Jesus did to make these groups of people so angry, angry enough to want to kill him? We've looked at a number of stories over the last couple of months. We saw back a while ago in Luke chapter 5 where Men brought this guy to be healed. They had to lay him through the roof because it was so crowded. And Jesus pronounced his sins forgiven, and that was one of the first things that really got them all riled up because he said only God can forgive sins. So basically, not only Jesus not only forgave him and then healed him, but was claiming the authority that only God could have. Then we see, soon after that, he called Levi, a tax collector, who was considered a treason to their country. I'm tra- uh, not a treason, a traitor to their country. Called him to be a disciple. And Matthew said, I'll follow you and calls a big, has a big party and calls all his tax collectors, sinner friends, and Jesus goes. And so these religious leaders were so upset with Jesus because he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. We're supposed to be holy. We shouldn't have anything to do with people like that. And the third and major thing that really upset them is that Jesus did not keep all of their rules. Two weeks ago was the last time I preached, and we were talking about how they said, why don't you fast like we do? God had only required one fast a year, but they had a bunch of other fasts and, and traditions and stuff, and, and Jesus didn't do that. And I want to make it very, very clear. Jesus obeyed all of God's law. All the things that God required and wanted of His people, Jesus obeyed completely, totally, and perfectly. Jesus being God came to earth and it says that he never sinned. But these religious leaders through the centuries had added so many other rules and regulations that they said were just as important as what God had said. And Jesus didn't pay them any attention. He would break their rules and their regulations all day long. Not deliberately to antagonize them, but this is not what God told them to do. He would just carry out his ministry, and in the process of doing so, it would break their rules and regulations. And so they were very, very upset because of his authority and his lifestyle. It undermined their authority. It dashed their pride. Took them down in the eyes of the people. We know now Jesus is God come in the flesh. He's the Messiah of God's people. And these are the people that should have recognized him for who he was. And they didn't because they were so caught up in their own ideas and their own perceived understanding of God and his word that they had made up on their own. That they missed who Jesus was and what he'd come to do. And they're plotting to kill him. And that's where we jump in today in Luke chapter 6. The title of the message is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. Let's read Luke 6 verses 1 to 11 just straight through. We'll come back and talk about it here in just a moment. It says, On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, the disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what Jesus did when he was hungry? I'm sorry. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's where we get the title today, Lord of the Sabbath. It goes on in verse 6. On another Sabbath... He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. And the word that's used there is they're looking at him really close, kind of looking out of the corner. They're looking to find something wrong. They're inspecting. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Look at these men of God. Looking intently to try to see anything they can use to accuse Jesus. Forget the thing that, forget the idea that this guy needs a healing. Forget the idea that this guy needs a touch from God and maybe he's gonna get it. We gotta find something to nail Jesus with. But he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to him, Stretch out your hands. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury. That word there for fury is one of the strongest words for anger and fury you can use in the Greek language. It means driven almost to insanity with anger. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, I know it doesn't say they were plotting to kill him, but when you look at this same story in the other gospel writers, they make it very clear that when they were talking about what can we do with him, they mean how can we get rid of him? How can we put him out of our misery? How can we eliminate him completely, totally, once and for all? You see, I told you that they had all these ideas about God's laws and... These rules that, um, you know, they wanted to keep God's rules, but they also added their own rules to it. And we're going to see a little bit later that they actually had some kind of good reasons why they added more rules, but it got out of hand. But one of the most important thing to them, one of the most important things to them and to all of God's people at that time was the Sabbath. Perhaps you've heard of the Sabbath. Now, you may think that today is the Sabbath. Sunday. It's when God's people gather to worship, but today's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is actually Saturday, and in the Jewish way of reckoning, it goes from sundown Friday night until sundown Saturday night. The word Sabbath itself comes from a root that means to stop, to cease, to rest. And as we study God's word, we see it was a commanded day of rest for God's people in the Old Testament. And it was one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, when you look at the teaching on the Ten Commandments, when they're given in Exodus 10 and then later in the law, it's the one that has the most explanation and the most restrictions and everything else to it. But it goes way back before the Ten Commandments. The Bible makes it clear that this is something that God put into place for his people from the very beginning when he created the earth. Because it's something that God himself participated in, even though he didn't have to. It's that he worked six days, then he rested on the seventh. And that was the foundation of the Sabbath. And when you study God's word, we find that the whole purpose of God instituting the Sabbath is twofold. One was to give his people rest. Rest. We're so used to, well, it's not that way anymore because things have changed so much. Used to the idea of a kind of a five-day work week or way, but you get time off, you rest. But in most societies throughout history, they didn't take time to rest. They had to scrape, they had to work, they had to exert themselves every day from the time they got up until later in the day just to live and to survive. And God says, my people don't need to be that way. If they'll trust me to take some time to rest, it'll be good for them. And we know the benefits of rest today, whether we practice it or not. In fact, God was so stringent on it. He says, you, not only should you rest, but your animals too, okay? Your oxes, your, your donkeys, your whatever, make sure they rest too. Rest. But then the second part was worship. A time to stop in the busyness of life, to just contemplate, to just contemplate. God and their relationship with Him. And so God did give a lot of instructions about the Sabbath. He told them to keep it holy, which literally means to be separate or to be different. It was a day that was going to be different from all the other days of the week. They were not to work. But God's intent was that it would be a blessing that would draw people closer to Him. And allow them to rejuvenate in a physical and emotional and mental way. But the trouble started when religious leaders got involved and said, God said we shouldn't work. What does it mean to work? Well, there's some obvious things like, you know, the work that we do around the house, you know, cleaning and repairing, fixing meals, all that kind of stuff. And all that kind of, and that kind of stuff was, was laid out in God's word. And not only the stuff around the house, but our occupation, go out to, you know, take care of the fields, take care of the flocks, take care of the herds. That's all work. That's occupation. Work at home, work at, in the, you know, out there doing whatever you do for a living. You're not supposed to do it on that day. And, and God spelled that out. But the religious leaders were like, man, we need a little bit more explanation. So over the years, they actually developed so many rules. They, they codified it. Okay, They wrote it down. They they taught it. They preached it. They developed 39 categories of things that you were not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And that's just the number of categories. Each of those categories had subcategories. And each of those subcategories had specific rules. And it also had exceptions. Because they were really good that if there was a rule they'd made and it became too convenient, they figured out a way to get around it. So it becomes such a big deal. A couple of them, think, a couple of the rules they did is you could only travel so far from home on the Sabbath. You say, well, what constitutes your home? Does that mean your house, your property, whatever? I told you before that they got around that by, by the day before. If they needed to go somewhere, they'd take something from their house and they'd take it a distance away from their house as far as you could go on the Sabbath. And they'd leave it there so on the Sabbath they could walk to that and they could say, oh, this is part of my house. And then they could go farther. Had a way of manipulating things. The, one of the funniest ones I ever heard of, and I've shared this before, so you may remember. It's been a while. Was that you were not to prepare food, and and, and you weren't to do anything, you know, with the agriculture, like you know, um, harvesting grain and, and 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 all that kind of stuff. And, and some guy was was eating. Um, on the Sabbath. You could eat, you just couldn't prepare it. You had to prepare it the day before. And he was eating some bread with honey, and he dipped the spoon in the honey to put on the bread, and he put the honey spoon down on uh, an ear of corn with, you know, the husk and stuff, and we pulled it off and pulled the husk off. And they said, well, I didn't mean to do that, so that's not really work. So then they could husk corn if they used a spoon that had honey on. I've been told that that really happened one time. So they would find all kinds of ways to get around their own rules, if somebody was sick, a doctor couldn't heal them unless their life was threatened. If someone would come to a doctor on the Sabbath and they said, I'm sick, I need some help, I need whatever, I broke an arm, I have this gash, he'd be like, okay, well, if I leave it alone, will you still live till tomorrow? And if the answer was yes, he wouldn't do anything. Some little tiny things, you couldn't tie a knot. One knot. You couldn't untie a knot. knot. You couldn't sew one stitch. You couldn't write more than one letter. I mean, they got it down. They they got it exactly what you could and couldn't do. But all these rules were added to the fact that God says, listen, just don't work. It's important. There was punishment when you look at the Old Testament when they broke that because this was important to God. He says, this is one of two things that's going to really set you out as being my people. The other one was circumcision. Is that you do the Sabbath. It's important. But they added so much, they turned God's blessing into a tremendous burden. So that's the background to the story we're looking at here. We've got two episodes from Jesus' ministry. And the first one is Jesus and the disciples are going somewhere on the Sabbath. And as I said, Jesus kept all of God's laws. So whatever God's laws were about the Sabbath, they weren't traveling any farther than they should have. But they were traveling either alongside or through a field, which many times paths would go right through the center of the field. So it could be that way. And the disciples were hungry. So they were picking some of the grain, rubbing it between their hands to get the chap off the outside, and, and, and then kind of throwing that aside. And then they would eat the kernels just something to eat they were hungry and what they did was actually not against the law in fact god provided for that he told farmers listen when you grow your fields people are going to be coming by and if they need something to eat let them just take it okay same thing for for vineyards you know grapes and and other types of produce now they can't come and reap your field and take a bunch home but they can take as much as they want to eat right then So what the disciples were doing were not against God's law. God actually provided for that. And he said, when it comes time to harvest your field, leave the edges the way it is so that the poor people can come and get something to eat. The problem was they were doing it on the Sabbath. What makes me wonder is, I guess not really wonder, is... How did the Pharisees know that they were doing this? They were traveling. They obviously had spies or were out there themselves again watching Jesus to try to figure out something they could use against him. And they said, Your disciples are doing what isn't allowed on the Sabbath. They're reaping, because they're picking up some kernels. They're threshing because they're rubbing off the chaff. They're winnowing because they're throwing the chaff away. And they're preparing food. You're allowed to eat on the Sabbath. They broke four of their rules. Well, Jesus defends it, and this is kind of a little bit funny. He says, have you not read? That's kind of like a little bit of a jab at the Pharisees. If anybody has read God's word and knows it backwards and forwards, it's the Pharisees. So he's kind of like saying, aren't you smarter than, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, he says, have you not read? He said, have you read the story about David? And you can read this story later. It's found in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. And And, and David is on the run from Saul who wants to put him to death. And he goes to um, where God's tabernacle is. And the priests are serving there. And he tells the priest, he says, listen, you know, me and my men are hungry. You got something to eat. And the priest said, man, we don't have anything to eat. All we've got is this bread. And, and to make it really brief, there would be 12 loaves of bread that would be put out every Sabbath. In the tabernacle It's called the show bread, the bread of the presence And the only people that could eat it, and they could only eat it after they'd been there for a week, were the priests. And he says, all we have is the bread that we just took out because we put fresh in. But only the priests are supposed to eat it. And David says, well, can I eat that? And if you read the story, the whole story, it says that they inquired of the Lord. It doesn't say exactly what they inquired of the Lord about. It just says they inquired of the Lord for David. And many Bible scholars believe that they were actually asking God, is it okay to give David this bread? And and they said, yes. And so they gave David the bread. And so in this story, David and his men end up eating bread that under normal circumstances is only supposed to be eaten by the priest. Now, this isn't a moral law. This is just a ceremonial law. And so the idea that Jesus is trying to put out there is that if God would allow David, the greatest king, the man they all looked up to, to break a ceremonial law, not a moral law, but just because he was in need, don't you think it would be okay for men to break man-made laws to meet their need, second thing he says is that basically says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, "The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." And basically what he' telling them is that he and this is another kind of um, not direct but indirect statement that I'm God He says, "I have the authority to interpret what God intends for the Sabbath." and to declare what that might be and to do what that is and to ignore any other man-made rules on the Lord of the Sabbath. That upset them. And that brings us to the second episode that we just read a few moments ago. On another Sabbath, Jesus is in the synagogue teaching as he often does. And there's a man there with a withered hand and, and the word there is all dried up. He can't do anything with it. Jesus wants to heal him. The Pharisees are there specifically looking for, hoping he'll heal him so that they can so that they can jump all over him and have another reason to condemn him. So they can trap him. Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he asks them, listen. He calls them up, he says, Come here, come here. He says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? He says, which is better, good or harm? And the obvious answer is good. But they had limited so much good that could be done on the Sabbath, even under God's rules, because they'd made so many of their own rules that would hinder it. And then he says this, he says, to save life or destroy it. I love the fact that you can study God's word all your life and God will still bring new things to light. I had never thought of this before, but when I was studying this list last week, some of the resources I was studying, they pointed this out that one of the things that Jesus is saying here, I want to save this guy's life or way of living. But in your heart, you're already contemplating whether to destroy mine. So when he asks this question, is it lawful in the Sabbath to do good or do harm? It's obvious. To save life or destroy it, there's kind of this underlying tension of I want to save a life. I want to make life worth living. I want to make life better lived. Whereas you on the Sabbath are contemplating how to destroy my life. The principle he's saying is always right to do good on the Sabbath. In fact, if you don't do the good you can do, then it ends up being evil. So that's kind of that background. And it's like, how do we apply this to our own life? How do we apply this to our own life? And I want to I want to give you several things. And then I got this one, one, one uh, thought that God just really laid on my heart that I'm going to share with you toward the end. But just a couple things to, to really practically um, apply the principles that we see in this passage. Number one is obey God obey God. Now why I say that is that someone could take this story and use it as a reason or excuse to not be concerned about what God says in his words because it's obvious that Jesus broke God's commandments. He wasn't all that concerned about it. If there was an important reason not to do what God said, then, then he didn't have to and so therefore if there's an important reason for us not to do what God says, then we don't have to either but keep in mind what I've already emphasized Jesus always obeyed God and his law it was the man-made rules that he did not concern himself with following or keeping in fact in Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 to 20 it's a great passage go study it on your own but it's a part of the sermon on the mountain jesus talks about the law he talks about how important it is and how it will last forever and it will still be binding until it is fulfilled but he also goes to say that God sent him to fulfill the law. And that's one of the reasons why we don't keep all the Old Testament laws is because Jesus already fulfilled them. Okay? In case that's risen in your, in your mind, it's like, well, why don't we keep all those laws? Because Jesus fulfilled many of them. The sacrificial laws, the ceremonial laws. There's a number of other reasons we don't keep some of the other Old Testament laws because some were given just to God's people, Israel, and they're only for them. It's not for us today. And that's a whole other study, so I can't dig deeply into it. But this passage is not trying to tell us that God's requirements are not important. They are. They are. It's the man-made rules that aren't. And so one thing that we need to be sure to draw from here is don't just use this as an excuse not to obey God. We need to obey God. Let me give you three. This is a whole different, uh, a whole, this could be its own study, but I'm just give it to you real quick. Why should we obey God? It'd be easy because he's God. Yeah, I understand that. But let me just give you three really good reasons to obey God. Number one, obedience glorifies God. The Bible indicates, and I think it's the Westminster Catechism, says that man was created to glorify God. We exist for Him. There's a number of passages, but Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we obey God and the fruit that comes out in our life It becomes a testimony to others and it brings glory to God. A second reason why we should obey God is because obedience is the foundation of your relationship with God. You will not have a good relationship with God unless you obey Him. Now, that's not how you start a relationship with God. We can't start or have a relationship with God just because we're good people. We're all sinners separated from God. That's why Jesus came to die on the cross. It was His death that paid the price for our sins. It's not our obedience. But once we've been forgiven and He is our Savior and He is our Lord, then we live a life of obedience to glorify God, but also to be in good relationship with Him. In fact, God made it very clear that if you are truly saved from your sins, if you truly have a relationship with God, you will obey Him. And if you don't, there may be some doubt as to whether you really have a relationship with God or not. Now, I didn't say that. God's word says that. Now, that doesn't mean that that once you become a Christian, you are now perfect. And if you somehow mess up, you don't have a relationship with God. No, but if you are a Christian and you have a relationship with God, you will be always be working to, to, to do what God wants you to do. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He says, if you really love me, we've got a relationship. You're going to do what I say. First John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, John says, And by this we know that we have come to know God, that we have a relationship with Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But then the third and a more practical, and to be honest with you, a little bit more selfish, perhaps, reason to obey God is because obedience will result in what's best for you. I've said this so many times. People look at God and they say, oh, he's a mean, a mean guy upstairs. All he wants to do is ruin our fun. He's given us all these rules and commandments and and all this kind of stuff. It's because he he, he wants us to be miserable in this life. And the only reason people are able to believe that is because sin is fun. If it wasn't fun in the short term, we wouldn't do it. But God knows, and many of times we have experienced, that when you give your life over to sin, you may enjoy it for a while. It may be good for a while, but sin destroys. Sin binds. People talk about, I want to be free to what I want to do. And then they become bound to sexual uh, bondage. They get bound to substances. They get bound to anger. They get bound to so many things. God created us. God really knows how we work and how we can best live a good life. He wasn't upstairs, he wasn't up there looking down saying, these guys are having too much fun, let's give them much rules and ruin their fun. He's up there looking down and says, sin is destroying my people. Let me give them guidelines that they can live by this so they can experience a life that is abundant, like Jesus said. Free from the bondage and consequences of sin. It's interesting because Jesus said something along these lines. This same story, but Mark's version of it. He says something else that Jesus said that day. In Mark 2, 27, Jesus also said that day, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What does that mean? He's basically saying that God didn't create the Sabbath to make man miserable and he'd have something else he had to do. No, God created man and then he created the Sabbath to benefit man. The principle that's there is that anything and everything that God asks us to do, it's for our benefit. may not always be easy. In fact, sometimes it can be real difficult. Sometimes it can feel a whole lot better and more enjoyable to do the opposite of what God would say. But in the long run, it's going to hurt us. It's going to bite us. It's going to cause us bondage. But if we do what God says, it's for our own good. It's for our own good. The teaching of Scripture, as many of you know, is that all of God's commandments are summed up by loving God and loving others. Second thing that we can draw from this passage today is don't impose your rules on other people. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They had all these rules... That the religious leaders, true over centuries, had, had, had come up with, but they weren't God's rules. And they were not only living themselves, but they were trying to make everybody else live them because in their mind, they were just as important as God's rules. And I mentioned earlier that they had come up with these rules many times for a good reason. They would see a commandment of God and say, well, what does that really mean? Because I want to obey it. So when God says, don't work on the Sabbath, "Well, what does it mean to not work? I mean, I know in general what it means, but what does it mean specifically? Is it okay for me to do this, to do that? And that's one of those issues where they should just be committed to God and say, God, I'm not going to work on the Sabbath. You show me what that means. I mean, there's things you've spelled out. I know that I shouldn't go out and harvest crops or plant fields or take care of the flocks. I know that. I know I shouldn't be working at home, prepare things ahead of time so I can just relax. But Lord is picking this up I mean, they even debate about whether it was work for you to pick up your child. That was better left between a person and God. But instead, they made all these rules. You can't do this. You have to do that. But they had a good reason. Lord, what does it mean? How does that apply? Some of the rules they made are technically called fence rules that God said, don't do this. And they said, I don't want to do that. So I don't want even get close to doing this. It'd be sort of like saying, uh, don't step off of this platform. Even more importantly, don't fall off of this platform. For that to happen, I'd have to get really close to the edge, right? Put myself in a precarious position. So I might would tell myself, okay, I don't want to step off. I don't want to fall off the platform. So I'm not even going to come within a foot of it. Okay, well, let's say that God had a rule. God had a law. He says, don't step off the platform. Don't fall off the platform. If I stepped up right to the very edge, would I be breaking God's law? No. But if I set myself a boundary a little bit further back, that's not God's law. He doesn't say don't step within a foot of it. But I'm telling myself, I'm not going to step within a foot of it because I don't want to go too far. And so many of the rules that they created were really good things for them because it kept them from getting too close to the edge. Can I tell you that we often do just the opposite? We want to see how close to the edge we can get without sinning. And many times that's how we end up falling into sin and giving into temptation. We need to sense set some, some rules for ourselves. In fact, you probably already have in certain areas of your life. I told you about one last week where, you know, it doesn't say in God's word not to do this, but I won't meet alone with a woman for counseling or whatever. They've got to bring somebody with them. My wife's got to be with me or whatever. I just won't do that. It's a fence rule, but that, but, but it would be wrong for me to put that on somebody else. To look at other pastors who do that or counselors and say, well, they're they're disobeying God. What horrible people they are. They must not even have a good relationship with God because they meet alone with women. That would not be right. So whatever things we establish in our lives, and God may even encourage us and help us to establish things in our life. You don't need to go there. You know, an alcoholic who's recovered from that, probably needs some kind of fence rule in his life about not going certain places or maybe even being around certain people because it would draw them back into that bondage. I mean, there's so many different ways to apply that, that these rules can be good. But when we demand that everybody else live by our rules because we found them to be good and we put them on the same level as God's, that's not right. So don't impose your rules on other people. The problem with these leaders is they said their rules were just as important as God's laws. So your rules, what I mean by that is rules you live by that God has not given. But as I said, personal rules can help us to avoid sin. So those are not bad. Now, I just want to say really quickly, there are a couple of exceptions about imposing our rules on other people, and that is if we are in a position of authority and responsibility, we need to some degree to make decisions and rules for people under our authority. A great example is in the home. This may not be popular among younger people, but parents have the right and authority to set the rules for their home. And to expect those living in their home to abide by them. Now, can I tell you, it's easy for us as adults, and I'll add my amen to that. A bunch of you saying amen. But can I tell you that we have an even greater responsibility as parents to make the rules good and wise and fair and biblically based. And can I tell you that in the process, we need to do go about this in such a way that as our children or those in our home are growing older and maturing, that we don't just tell them what they should do and not do, and that's it. Because they need to learn how to set their own rules, or they'll get out in the world and go off the deep end. We may need to give them a little more freedom. In fact, we should, as they get older, and let them be a part of helping to make the rules and and training them how to make good decisions. That's a whole other sermon, but I just want to throw that out there. But if you are in a place of administration and in leadership, even in the church, you have the right and responsibility to set perhaps certain rules. I mentioned earlier that, you know, it wouldn't be right for me to look at other pastors and say that there's something wrong with them or they must not really love God because they meet alone with women. But I can tell you as the pastor of this church that we've always had a had a policy in our church for our staff people that this is just not something we're going to do at our church. You know, you don't need to meet with somebody of the opposite sex alone or whatever. You need to set it up so that you can do it differently. Okay. We have other requirements for people that we allow to serve in leadership and all that kind of stuff. And it's because God has put us in leadership and we want to guide that process and put guidelines in place to help us to function well. But those guidelines are based on God's word. The third one is this. Don't give in to legalism. In other words, don't become a Pharisee. And I've said this before. We have often thought of the Pharisees as the bad guys, but they're the people in the Bible that we're most like in what we believe. I mean, if we really believe the Bible, we really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We love God. We want to serve Him. We want to obey Him. We believe the Bible is God's Word. We believe in the miraculous and the supernatural and the resurrection. And we're looking forward to standing before God. And hopefully we're looking forward to that because we believe that we'll be rewarded for what we've done and all that. The Pharisees believed all those things. But they added everything else. And so it'd be very easy for us to give in to legalism to become like them. What are some signs? If your rules become as important as God's requirements, if your rules become more important than relationships, if you expect things from others that God may not expect from them, that leads you to judge them unfairly. I've done this. You ever seen somebody who doesn't live the same lifestyle you do and say, I can't believe they call themselves a Christian and that's the way they live. Now, if they're deliberately, obviously disobeying God's law we still don't need to be condemning and judgmental we need to pray for them and if we got a relationship lovingly you know help to encourage them to get back on track and stuff but if it's something that god hasn't said maybe it's something god's spoken to us about but it's not in his word it's one of our rules and we look at somebody i can't believe that you may be getting caught up in legalism you end up focusing on minor things and ignoring major things You know, Jesus said a couple things about the religious leaders of his days. He says, you know what? You know, you're drinking soup and you strain out a gnat that landed in it when actually there's a camel in there you're totally ignoring, you know? We're going to see this in a couple of weeks or later on down the road when we get to it in Luke. I think it's seven when he talks about judging others. Some people think it means we should never ever judge others. That's not what that's saying. Say, well, what does it mean? Well, come back that week we preach on that. Come back every week in between. But Jesus did say, you know, you're so concerned about taking a speck out of somebody's eye, and you've got a log in yours, you know? So Jesus would talk to the Pharisees about this. He says, you know, you're so into tithing, which is a great biblical principle, that you even tithe your herbs. God didn't ask you to do that. He said, but you know what you ignore? You ignore justice, and you ignore mercy. You're a great tither, but you're terrible with people. So that's another sign of legalism. We focus on the minor things and ignore the major things. And in this story, we see it. The Pharisees are so concerned that Jesus might actually heal this guy, which I find it really, I meant to mention this earlier, that Jesus didn't actually touch the guy. He just says, extend your hand. Jesus didn't do anything. So they couldn't say, Jesus healed him. It's like, well, he just told him to put his hand out. But anyway, they were so focused on this little thing, but yet they didn't realize that they were plotting murder, which is definitely against God's law. And then another thing about legalism is you become more concerned about appearing righteous than being righteous. It's all about the outside. It's all about the appearance. Well, there's some practical things to perhaps help us apply the principles in this word. But I want to wrap this up, and the worship team can go ahead and come on up as soon as you're ready. You still got a little bit of time. I want us to contemplate some things that are not so cut and dry, that are not so this, 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 and this. And here's a, a standard you can apply, uh, compare yourself to. But the reason Luke included these stories in here, besides just telling another thing that Jesus did and how that's proceeding and all that, was to get the people reading the story to contemplate once again who really is Jesus. I've told you a couple times since we started this series, that's one of the reasons we're studying this, even today, if we're not really sure who we think Jesus is, this is an opportunity for us to take a look at accurate records that were kept about his life and what happened and what he did and say, who really is Jesus? And, and that's what these religious leaders are wrestling with. That's what the people that they are wrestling with. The people knew he was a healer. The people knew he was somebody who cared about them. The people knew he was somebody who loved God. They're beginning to say, maybe he's the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for to deliver us. But the religious leaders are wrestling with this thing of, who is Jesus? And they're like, it's not anybody that's good, and we got to get rid of him. And we've got to deal with that same question today, who is Jesus? And you might say, well, that's not a big deal for me, because Jesus is God, and Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Savior, and he came to die for my sins, and I've got a relationship with him. But I want to take that just one little step further. The title of the message, Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is Lord over the most important thing in his people's lives at that time. As far as knowing God, serving God, obeying God. That particular issue is not as big of a deal to us, and we can't get into why that is. But let me ask you this. What is or what are the biggest things in your life? What are the most important things in your life? And I would ask you, is Jesus Lord of those things? Is there any area in your life, even though you're a Christian, perhaps you're a believer, you've asked Jesus to forgive you, so he's forgiven you, you know, that kind of stuff. But is there any area of your life where you are holding back? where you're not letting Jesus having full control, where you're not fully doing what he wants you to do. And I say, that's another way to apply this. It's not as cut and dried, but it's another way to apply this today. Will you make Jesus Lord of your Sabbath? Make him Lord of those things that are most important to you? And then the other thing we see in this story is, are there any ways in which our rules keep us from loving God, the person, but, but loving other people as we should? Do we ever use spiritual reasons to excuse ourselves from loving people, from touching people, from reaching people, from helping people? Jesus said, it's always right to do good. On the Sabbath or any time. Don't let man-made rules or things to get in the way. And this is something I've got to examine in my own heart. I'm a pastor. I've known the Lord for 50-something years. I really do love Him. I want to serve Him and stuff. But how many times might I use my responsibilities and my workload? And these are spiritual things, you know. And to keep me from really doing what's even more important at times... May God help us to love people. We need to obey God. We do it within his framework, but may we never use our spirituality, our relationship with God, things we say are important spiritually that maybe God hasn't said a whole lot about to keep us from doing what he wants us to do. Let's all stand together. I'm going to invite our elders to come, those that are ready and available, to be available for prayer. We're going to conclude our service. Our worship team will lead us in a song. As we always do, I encourage you to meditate on what God has spoken today and how that applies to your life, to pray about how it needs to apply to your life. If you want to come forward as an act of commitment, saying, God, you spoke to my heart and here's what I'm doing about it, and you want to go pray... You know, apart from one of us because we're here to pray with you if you want us to but you can come and pray somewhere else away from us and to seek God you can do that but I challenge you not to just say okay we're going to be out of here in five minutes thank you Jesus a little earlier today but to apply it you can sing along in worship if everything's good between you and God but we're going to be here because if you want prayer for anything whether it has to do with the message or something totally different you need healing you're going in for procedure you're concerned about a relative a friend and you want us to pray with you we're going to be here to pray with you so we're going to take this time to worship to contemplate to commit to pray and i'll come back to close in prayer in just a couple of moments amen i hope that the message today was not discouraging but was encouraging god we can have a relationship with you through jesus christ I want to love and serve you with all my heart show me how best to do that and Lord in the process help me to love other people help me not to be critical help me not to be judgmental help me not to be legalistic help me to stand for the truth and help my brothers and sisters if they start getting off track to lovingly try to draw them back into that but basically Lord help me to be like Jesus and Lord whatever area of my life is not what it should be, help me to put that under your lordship too. Father, we come to you right now thankful for the opportunity that we've had to gather together in this place to worship you, to be challenged and encouraged. I know you've done that today. I just pray you'd help us to respond to it the way you want us to. Help us to do all the things I just mentioned, Lord, to love you and serve you with all of our heart, to love other people, to please you in the way we live our lives. And to not allow our religiosity and our spirituality To get in the way of anything That you want to do in us and through us But instead that it be the motivating factor For us to really love people And touch their lives God if there's anything in my life I can only pray for myself If there's anything in my life that's not under your lordship I'm, I'm holding back Lord God I'm, I'm disobeying Lord God Or maybe I'm not fully doing what you want me to do Show me help me to do what you want me to do and father i thank you for that god as we leave this place or for those that are online as they go into their life this week also help us to represent you well in our world and use us to touch other people's lives we ask it in jesus name and everybody said amen If you enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study, for more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.